The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I want you to open your Bibles, if you would please, to the book of Exodus chapter 20. The title of my message today is, An Idol is a Dumb Thing. This is part two of the message that I began last week, and I took the title of this message from Paul's thought in uh, 1 Corinthians, where Paul spoke of the uh, Corinthians as being led away at one time to the worship of dumb idols. Our subject is the Ten Commandments, and specifically the Second Commandments, which prohibits the making of and the worship of of idols. Now, before you look at that 20th chapter, put your finger there and just turn a few pages over to the 24th chapter. And I want us to read verses 9 and 10, where Moses and Aaron and his sons and some of the elders of Israel had a stunning vision of God. Exodus 24 and verse number 9. Then went up Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, And they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, and as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. Now Moses and these others were called upon the mountain that was blazing with fire and smoke. There was earthquakes, there was thundering and lightning. It was truly a fearsome sight, and out of that scene appeared... uh, the, the a vision of the beauty of heaven uh, and of God and under in the background of this with uh, God standing there on a paving of a color of sapphire that was a display of the living God now likewise in Isaiah chapter 6 Isaiah was given a vision of God on the throne and he wrote that God was high and holy and lifted up and he said the skirts of his garment filled the temple And then in Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel in his prophecy also had a vision of God. I'll leave that to you to read at a later time. I don't even think that I could explain all that Ezekiel saw. And then if you want to go a little bit further into the Bible and just keep on going, you'll come to the end, to the Revelation. And there in Revelation chapter 1, the apostle John had a vision or he saw the risen Christ, the living Christ, and... He saw Christ in his glory, and that sight was so overwhelming to him that John said, I fell at his feet as dead. Well, we can take those encounters and place them behind this second commandment, which really makes the title of this message just leap out to us. How can this God be pictured with man's hands? How can you turn God into an idol? This is what God says in the 20th chapter. If you'll look, please, at verse number 4. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Now those descriptions 
of God that are given in Scripture shout out to us, how can you possibly make the omnipotent, omniscient, the eternal creator of heaven and earth into a dumb idol? Now that's the theme of the message today. Idols are a dumb thing. That's not my description. That is the Bible's description. They can't see. They can't hear. They can't move. If they are moved then they're taken from place to place by the hands of fallible men who made them. The idol is dumb, but then in another way, so are the people that make them and worship them. And when I say that, I I certainly don't mean to be demeaning to anyone's intelligence, because I know that Satan is able to blind the minds of the most intelligent people. Satan is able to blind the most erudite people and cause them to believe a lie. And they actually become dumb to God. And we actually have no more eyes to see or ears to hear than a person who is a idol worshiper unless God should open up our hearts to recognize Him and to know Him through the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's only by what God reveals to us that we understand His mercy and His grace. Well, as we looked at this command last week, I I spoke of its prohibition, and God said that the false is forbidden. That's first in our lesson sheet today, that the false is forbidden. God is a God of truth and only of truth, so anything that is false about Him is a belief that you're not allowed to touch. You're not allowed allowed to hold any false belief about the true God. And this is a very important thing because this uh, commandment tells us that we are not allowed to make God, make up God, to reinvent God, to picture Him in a way that we want to picture Him, to show God as we think that God ought to be. I want to talk about this a little bit more later, but first I want to talk to you about the physical thing, the physical representation of God. God, for any purpose, is forbidden. A carving, a sculpting, the painting of images, anything that's used as an aid to worship, this commandment covers. And it says, you shall not make an idol in order to worship God. Now, worship is the key word. It's the focus of the second commandment. Now, both the first and the second commandments are about worship. In the first, it is the worship of false gods. That is prohibited. And in the second... It's the worship of the true God in a false way. And that also is forbidden. And so the second commandment would be about those who claim to be Christians, but they've made up idols, or they use idols in their worship of God. And you can't worship the true God in a false way. God never accepts false worship. It doesn't matter what the excuse for it. He will not accept worship through an idol. Now, in my life, in past times, I've had the opportunity on a few occasions to to travel to some European countries. And one of the things that I like to do, or one of the touristy things that I like to do, is to visit those beautiful, ornate churches that you find in Europe. Now, I'm used to the Baptist church, which, as you can look around our auditorium today, and you can see it's not very ornate. Nothing is really very fancy here at all. Uh, I do happen to know, though, of a, of a Baptist church in the South Bay area that has a pulpit that's like a throne, and that shows that Baptists can also be quite creative in their building of edifices to preachers and people that they like to worship. And in some churches, the preacher gets more worship than God does, which, in effect, makes the preacher an idol. 
But I am stunned when I look at these beautiful cathedrals that I've seen in Europe. St. Mark's Cathedral or St. Mark's in Venice is just an unbelievable place. The, the thousands of pieces of gold mosaic that make up its artwork, that is just unparalleled. The first cathedral I ever visited was in Bern, Switzerland. And when I went in, I was just amazed at the immensity of that place where they say that they worship God. But of course, the most captivating of all would be to visit St. Peter's in Basilica in Rome, Basilica in Rome, which is the headquarters of Roman Catholicism. And in that church, the Pope has a throne that is supposedly built over the bones of Peter. Now, if that's true, it's a very appropriate place because there is nothing as dead to God than Roman Catholicism. But in St. Peter's, there is what I would call an epidemic of idols. Catholics will argue that they don't really worship idols. But all that you need to do is just watch them for a few minutes as thousands parade through that, that cathedral, bowing and crossing themselves, no doubt feeling that they're treading on holy ground. Thousands bow before the statues of Mary that are in that place. They pray to the one that they say is the Queen of Heaven. And there also stands there a statue of Peter that people rub and kiss the toe so often that sculptors are on standby to fix that toe and put it back together again because it's worn down by the friction of so many people that pass by and touch it, kiss it, rub it, and so on. That is the exact purpose of this command. It's intended to prohibit worship of idols or making idols for worship. So you can't make an idol of a false god and neither can you make an idol to worship the true God. I think this is a very important point concerning Catholicism that Roman Catholics actually have a different reading of the Ten Commandments. And what they do is they obscure this second commandment by combining it with the first and the combination of those two commandments leave the impression that you are only prohibited to make an idol of a false god. Now, just listen to the reading of it and how it obscures the truth if you try to combine the first and second commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And then as an explanation of that statement, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. And so it appears that the prohibition only applies to making images of false gods. And so the Roman Catholics will justify their images by saying that they don't make images to a false god, that's what's prohibited, but they make their images to the true God. Well, they're no strangers at manipulating Scripture or ignoring Scripture to get to the desired result, but regardless of the creativity that they have in trying to combine those two commandments, we can't worship the true God in a false way. Now let's look at this for just a moment from the perspective of what we've just read and what I showed you in those other places in, in uh, Exodus chapter 24, Isaiah chapter 6, Ezekiel chapter 1, and Revelation chapter 1. First we saw that the false is forbidden and now we see that an image is impossible. I mean it is impossible to capture the true God with an image. How do you capture sapphire pavement, thunder and lightning, a train that fills the temple, eyes of fire and feet of brass that are burned in a furnace, a face that shines above the brightness of the sun and its strength? How could you do that? You can't represent God by an idol because any such attempt will always be to degrade Him. 
It's terribly dishonoring to him because it makes him beneath what he truly is. Now, the first reason that you can't do it is because of God's nature. God is invisible. 1 Timothy 1.17, Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, I want you to listen to Moses as he emphasized this in the repetition of the law in Deuteronomy. He says in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Take ye therefore good heed unto yourselves, for ye saw no manner of similitude on the day that the Lord spake unto you in Horeb out of the midst of the fire, lest ye corrupt yourselves and make you a graven image, the similitude of any figure, the likeness of male or female. He said, you did not see a similitude. Or in other words, you did not see God. And so take heed that you make nothing that pictures a visible form of God because you will corrupt yourselves by making images. Now it doesn't appear that Moses allowed for the combining of these two commandments and that it would apply only to false gods. But then you take a look at the paintings that fill cathedrals. One of the most famous of all would be painted on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel in Vatican City where uh, that is the place where the Pope lives. Michelangelo's famous painting is of the Creator God who is pictured as an old gray-haired man who reaches out and touches the finger of Adam to bring him to life. I can't even show you that painting in mixed company today because of its lewdness. That's the idolatry forbidden in the second commandment. God has no visible form. And so to try and picture him is to degrade him. It dishonors the transcendent character of God. Any time that you attempt to capture him in an image, it will degrade God. Now, this is one of the things that made Israel's temple stand out among all the temples of the day. Because in Israel's temple, there was no God. There is no image of God. All the heathens, heathen temples had theirs, but Israel had no image, no idol of God. Thomas Watson wrote, Romanists make images of God the Father, painting him in their church windows as an old man, and an image of Christ on the crucifix. And because it is against the letter of this commandment, they sacrilegiously blot out of their catechism and divide this commandment, the tenth commandment, into two. And so in other words, to maintain ten commandments, which you can't do if you combine the first two, they have to do something different. And so they split the last commandment into two parts to make up the ten. Why is it impossible to make an image of God? It's a false representation. God said no to this. He said the moment that you do it, you have a false representation of who He is. Campbell Morgan wrote, the image, the picture, or the system of worship is limited. The essential fact of God is that He is limitless, that He is eternal, that He is self-existent, there being no end to His being and no limit to His power. Limitlessness lies at the heart and center of the thought of God. And the moment that a man makes an image, he denies the essence of God. For that reason, God forbade that there should be the making of any images, for not only is the image false, it is misleading. Now you think about that statement for just a moment, that we who are teachers of God's Word 
teachers of the one true living God, it's our responsibility to teach the truth about who God is. Now this commandment, or all the commandments, were designed to teach us the character of God. We learn how to be like God through these Ten Commandments. And so if these commandments are designed to make you like God, then what's going to happen if we don't teach the truth about Him? If we don't teach the truth about God, then you're not going to be what you're supposed to be. So not only does the making of an image degrade God, the making of an image will also degrade you. If you try to worship God through an image, then you won't have a true picture of God, and therefore you're not going to be like the one true living God. Now, teaching God through the use of idols by Catholicism has destroyed salvation for men. Now, you consider what they've done in the worship of Mary. We call that Mariolatry. What is that? That's the combining of Mary with idolatry. Mariolatry. And the doctrine of Mary says that she is as perfect as the Son of God, therefore she is suitable to be a co-redeemer with Christ. They teach that it was Mary who gave her permission for Christ to go to the cross and to give his life. And if that isn't a degradation of the Father's authority, then there is no such thing as a false representation of God. Oh, the Bible teaches us that it was God the Father who made a covenant with the Son in eternity past, before the world was ever created, that He would come and that He would give His life. And so that permission for the death of the Son of God came from God the Father. And you destroy His authority when you lend that authority to a creature and begin to worship that person through an idol. God says that you can't do that. So God is degraded, His office is degraded, His authority is degraded, God is blasphemed, and in His place, a false god is put there. That's the danger of idolatry. You can't know the true God through idols because it always obscures the truth. Well, here's a little interesting factoid about the idolatry of Roman Catholicism. Do others recognize the fallacy of their arguments that they don't worship idols? They say, we, we don't worship idols, we worship the God who is behind the idols. We worship God, not the idol. And we looked at that last week as we talked about the golden calf that was made by Aaron. And we discussed the two calves, the golden calves that were made by Jeroboam that were placed in Dan and in Bethel. And when those calves were made, they weren't made to represent a false god. They were made to represent the true god. You remember that discussion that we had on that? So those weren't images of false God, but worshiping the true God in the wrong way. Now consider for just a moment the history of Islam, that Islam is a monotheistic religion that strictly forbids idols. Any of you ever seen an image of, idol, of Allah? No, you haven't, and you never will. I suggest that you don't try to make one because you're lying, you might get your head cut off if you do. You're not going to see an image of, of Allah. Well, in ancient Israel, what God did was he often used heathens to chastise his people. God said very clearly that the Assyrians were instruments in his hand to punish Israel for their sins, and chiefly those sins were sins of idolatry. Did you ever wonder if God has done the same thing through Islam? In the year 565, Justinian, who was the emperor of the Byzantine Empire, built the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem, to replace an earlier church that was built by Constantine that had burned down. And when Islam rose to prominence in the Middle East, what they would do is they would try to destroy 
Roman Catholic churches and their idols. And so there were crusaders that were sent uh, to that part of the world, to the Middle East, to drive out Muslims in order to protect those shrines and that these churches were built over. And uh, these were the sacred places of Catholicism. And the crusaders did more than just fight Muslims. They also hated Jews. And so they killed thousands of Jews. If you, if you go to Israel today and you mention the crusaders, then that's like driving a dagger through their heart. I mean, they still hold a lot of animosity towards Roman Catholics because of those crusades. Well, the church in the nativity is a very interesting place because not only have Roman Catholics superstitiously built this huge church over the place that they say where Christ was born, but also it's interesting because of the ways that they try to protect that church and its shrines from Muslim invaders. And so we entered into this huge church uh, with its towering spire through a very, very small doorway. And you stoop down to go through this doorway, and then you go through a narrow, low corridor until it opens up into the church. And the reason that they built it that way was so that Muslim invaders could not ride their horses through the church doors and go in and smash, break down, and destroy the idols that were in those Catholic churches. Now, if you were to ask them, are those things really idols? Do people really worship idols? You would have no trouble at all hearing them say, of course these are idols. Of course they're worshiping idols in this. And so they would break those down. And you see that even heathens know better than to be taken in by an argument that says, oh, we're not worshiping the idol, we're worshiping God. God said, no idols. You can't make an image, you can't worship the true God by making degrading representations of Him. That's because God is an invisible spirit. You can never capture who God is. Well, that would bring up to us another interesting point. I'd like you to turn to Colossians chapter 1, if you would. The next problem that we would have to probe is images and paintings of Jesus. Is it all right to make a painting of Jesus? Has Jesus... Since he did come in the flesh, does that solve the problem of the invisible God being made into an image? Now we look in Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 12. It says, Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist." Now, did you notice there that it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God? Well, that doesn't mean, of course, that Jesus is an idol, but it means that he, in his flesh, is a representation of the invisible God. Does that solve the problem? Now, thank God, of course, that he did become visible in the person of Christ. Because he became visible, is it all right for us to make a crucifix with Jesus on it and then to say, this is Jesus our God? Well, let me describe some reasons why that's wrong. Now, first, Jesus in the flesh 
is an incomplete picture of God. We can only see God in Christ as he's united to manhood. And so when you make an image of Christ as a man, then you can't see anything in that of his majesty as God. Instead, what we see is God made into the image of the highest created being, which we know is man. Now, what those images are is the highest ideal of manhood. And so what that image does, it conceals mostly, if almost not all, of the nature and the character of the divine being. And what the crucifix is, is a horribly degrading thing, because it was on the cross that man did his worst to Jesus Christ, who tried to destroy Christ to prove that he wasn't God. And so if we leave Jesus on that cross, what we have is a half-God. We don't have all that God is. We see him only as a man when he was, in fact, both man and God. Calvin wrote, Behold, they paint and portray Jesus Christ, who is not only man, but also God manifested in the flesh. And what a representation is that? He is God's eternal Son, in whom dwells the fullness of the Godhead, yea, even substantially. Seeing it is said substantially, should we have portraitures and images whereby only the flesh may be represented? Is, not, is it not a wiping away of that which is chiefest in our Lord Jesus Christ, that is to wit, of his divine majesty? Yes, and therefore, whensoever a crucifix stands moping and mowing in the church, it is all one as if the devil has defaced the Son of God. Another author wrote, The pathos of the crucifix obscures the glory of Christ, for it hides the fact of his deity, his victory on the cross, and his present kingdom. It displays his human weakness, but it conceals his divine strength. It depicts the reality of his pain, but keeps out of our sight the reality of his joy and his power. In both these cases, the symbol is unworthy, most of all, because of what it fails to display. And so are all other visible representations of deity. The image shortchanges God in deplorable ways. Now, it's impossible to capture the eternal God in a temporal image. Someday that image is going to be broken. It'll be crushed. It'll be burned. It'll be forgotten. It may be displaced. It might be thrown away. Who knows? You could never do anything but injustice to the omnipotent, eternal God by trying to make an image of him. And then another reason that you shouldn't have a picture of Jesus is because that picture is always going to mean more to you than it should. Now, I remember when our kids were little that they would often take pictures of people and they would poke holes in the eyes and they would draw a mustache on that picture. Some of you probably did that when you were a child. I did it too. But what would you say to a child if he took a picture of Jesus and he poked holes in the eyes and drew a mustache on a picture of Jesus? What would you do about that? Well, you know this, that most people who like those pictures, what would they say to their children? They would say to them, you ought not ever to do that. You ought never to deface Jesus Christ because he is our God. Don't you poke holes in his eyes. Don't you draw a mustache on him. And when we tell them that and they're looking at that picture, what are we saying to them? We're saying to them, this is God. And so that image is exactly what we're talking about here. It is idolatry. You placed value on the image, and that is idolatry. 
And then there's a third reason why you should never have a picture of Jesus. And that is because there is no one today who's ever seen him. There are no portraits of him that were ever preserved. There were no paintings that were ever made of him. No one knows what Jesus looks like. Listen still to another comment. Psychologically, it is certain that if you habitually focus your thoughts on an image or a picture of the one to whom you are going to pray, you come to think of him and pray to him as the image represents him. And thus, you will in this sense bow down and worship your image. And to the extent the image fails to tell the truth about God, to that extent you will fail to worship God in truth. I doubt very seriously if there's a person in this room today that when we mention the name of Jesus Christ, that at some time, some way, there will appear an image in your mind of a picture that you've seen. Maybe there's one in your Bible. Maybe you've seen it other places. I don't know. Maybe you've got one hanging on the wall in your home. And so we come to identify Jesus with that picture. But if Jesus was to show up at our church today, I could promise you none of you would recognize him. None of you would know what he looks like. You would know that it's him because he doesn't look like those pictures. He's not the handsome Fabio or the Brad Pitt that you see in those pictures. Isaiah said... There is no beauty in him that we would desire him. There is no one who ever turned to Jesus because of his good looks. Jesus was an average man. He grew up in a despised little town. His father had a common job. He was never educated at a rabbinical school. He never wore fancy clothes. He was far less than anything that anybody would think that a king would be. Why then do we have these beautiful pictures of Jesus? Do you understand what God said? He said, if you try to make an image, you're going to get the wrong picture. And you will corrupt yourselves. What you have done is you have made Jesus like you want him to be. That's why you end up with beautiful pictures of Jesus. You ever seen anybody ever try to depict Jesus Christ as the Bible says that he looked like? What little description that we have? No, he's never pictured as somebody who's not handsome, someone who wouldn't draw you to him. He was just the perfect picture of a man who just looks like you just want him, you desire him, because he's just so pretty. Which, in fact, makes him effeminate, I think. But he's just so pretty. How could we not be drawn to him? It is a wrong image. And so what you've done is you tried to make God an image like you like him to be. God said you can't do it. You can't reinvent him. Now, thirdly, there is a prohibition against idols. The false is forbidden, an image is impossible, and now also Jehovah is jealous. Verse number 5, Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. God is a jealous God. Isn't that a very strange way to think about God? God, uh, Jealousy is a negative emotion. I mean, we think of jealousy as being sinful. We'll tell our children, you ought not to be jealous of another person. You tell your children, don't be jealous of people. Well, we have the wrong meaning of jealousy if that's what we think this means. This, that kind of jealousy is akin to covetousness. That you, you desire something that you think you ought to have. And you get jealous of another person because they have it. But this is a different kind of jealousy. In fact, you would expect this. This is something that you would say a person is seriously wrong in his thinking if he doesn't have this kind of jealousy. 
This is the kind of jealousy that a man has over his wife. He doesn't want her consorting with other men. She belongs to him. And he doesn't want her to have another man. And anybody that would say that it's wrong for a man to have that kind of feeling, there's something wrong with him, isn't there? We would all say that. Of course, you ought to have that kind of jealousy. Now let me back up for just a minute because we really have another good illustration of idolatry in that. Let's suppose that a woman came home and found another woman was in her house and she was kissing her husband. And so the man sees his wife come through the door and being surprised by it, he says, Honey, you don't understand. You don't understand what's going on here. This girl is beautiful and she reminds me of you. And so she comes over on days of the week that you're not here and she helps to remind me of you. I really love you, not her. Is she going to buy that? Well, you're crazy if you think that she would. She's not going to buy that excuse. Folks, that's the same thing as God says. Do you think that I'm fooled by the excuse? You have an idol and you say that you love me? You say, well, I keep this little crucifix because it reminds me of Jesus and what he did for me. And you kiss it and you caress it while God is watching. God doesn't buy it because he says that's an idol. God is a jealous God. What is God jealous about? He is jealous about his people. That's what I would say first. He's very jealous about his people. He doesn't want them flirting with other gods. He doesn't want you to make a god that represents him that's not really him and fall in love with that idol. He doesn't want that because he's jealous that his people follow him and him only. Now, when you see this in scriptures, uh, Israel was compared to an unfaithful wife, a wife that committed adultery. Israel was committing adultery with heathen gods. That's what we call spiritual adultery. Spiritual adultery is not when you, as a Christian, think about another man or a woman. Spiritual adultery is worshiping false gods. Now, I can tell you, like we discussed a, a couple of weeks ago with the first commandment, that God hates pluralism. God hates it when you might say that there are other ways that people can get to heaven besides Jesus Christ. God is very jealous about his people. He's not going to let you be a pluralist. That is, he's not going to let you have other ways to him you can't be a pluralist and be his child there's serious inequity between a pluralist and a christian then secondly god is jealous about his sovereignty god doesn't want anybody to have control over you but him he's not going to surrender his right to rule all things well, people say i'm the master of my fate as ingersoll said i am the captain of my soul but all of those people find out in the end they control absolutely nothing, that God is sovereign, he controls it all. But then mostly we can say that God is jealous about his glory. He doesn't want anybody to take glory for them. He, he, he doesn't want to give his glory to another. God doesn't want you to brag on you. He wants you to brag on him. Now, a few years ago, we used to attend a conference where preachers were more prone to talk about them than they were about God. And I remember after listening to a couple of sermons like that, that one of our men turned to me and said to me, what are we doing here? Where is God? When the first word of every sentence of a sermon is I, there's a problem. God is a 
jealous God. He's jealous of his glory. So you'd better get to know him. And you better not be taking God's glory for yourself and talking about who you are. If you insist that God can be made or his works can be transferred to an idol as heathens do, and you bow before that image and cross yourself or light a candle, you're raising the ire of God's jealousy. Now I want you to look at what comes next. There's a solemn warning and there is a curse that goes with idolatry. God said, I will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon their children until the third and fourth generation. That's a scripture that's often misused to claim that God is a miserable, unjust God. How can God punish children for the sins of their fathers? Good question. You've missed the point of what he's trying to teach here. He's trying to say that if you put something between you and God, then you're teaching your children to do the same. And your children are going to suffer because of the bad choices that you make. They will become idolaters just like you. You take a look at Catholicism. Are children captured in that system? Do they not grow up worshiping the same idols that their fathers worshipped? The idolatry of the fathers becomes the religion of the children. And so those children die and go to hell because they wouldn't turn from the idols that they've been taught to worship. Don't we know that an alcoholic father's vices are visited upon his children? And haven't you heard that those who abuse children as fathers, often their children become abusers themselves? Those are the sins of the father that are visited upon the children. So children suffer the poverty and the consequences of all sorts of evil that their parents do. And so the main point here is that the religion of the fathers becomes the religion of the children. Stephen had a comment on this when he was preaching to the Jewish Sanhedrin. Acts 7, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the dispensation of angels and have not kept it. So the Jews of Jesus' day were children of those who persecuted those Old Testament prophets. And he said, as your fathers did, so do you. And so they were persecutors of the modern prophets. John the Baptist, Jesus, the apostles, other Christians. Misrepresentations of God get passed down to the children by the fathers. Now what you need to do, fathers, is to ask yourself, what kinds of things do you do that get passed down to your children? Do you know what they are? Everything. Everything that you do gets passed down to your children. They follow you. They do what you do. Do you miss church? They'll miss church. Do you curse? They will curse. Do you drink? They will drink. They follow you. You talk bad about the pastor and the church when you go home? So will they. The sins of the fathers are visited on the children. But let me show you something better that the Word of God says. Psalm 145. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And His greatness is unsearchable. Listen. One generation shall praise thy works to another. And declare thy mighty works. Isn't that better? If children are taught the truth, 
the father's generation tells the truth to the child's generation. And what do they do? They worship God in spirit and in truth. Now, many people want to look at verse number 5, and they cry over verse number 5. How can God do this? Sins of the fathers visited on the children. And they skip verse number 6. And showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Do you know that we're greatly helped by reading that verse in a different way? Notice that in your Bible, that verse number 5, the word generations is in italics. That means that the translator supplied that word. They believed that it would complete the thought. It's a word that's not in the original Hebrew. But they might very well have done the same in verse number 6. And showing mercy unto thousands of generations of them that love me and keep my commandments. Now perhaps the translators left out generations in verse number 6. Maybe because there weren't thousands of generations between 1611 when the King James was translated and Exodus chapter 20. Maybe that's why they did. But wouldn't generations complete the thought that we have here? That God's mercy is super abundant. So there are a few generations that endure the curse of the fathers, three or four, but then there are thousands of generations that enjoy the mercies of God. God is merciful and gracious to whom, it says? To those that love Him and keep His commandments. So what does God say to you? He says, throw away your idols. Get rid of all of them. Get, ri- get, get with His program. He'll be your God forever, he says. Serve and worship him in the right way. Don't worship a false god by making an idol. And don't worship the true God by making an idol, anything that you might use to worship him. Don't try to worship the right God in the wrong way because that's not worship at all. Now, I want you to hold on to these thoughts. We're going to come back next week and we're going, we're going to discuss the practical application of this command to worship the one true God in the right way. And to prepare yourself for that, I want you to think over this next week, how do you worship God in the right way? What is the true worship of God? And I'll give you the simple answer right now. We'll discuss it further. But the way that you worship God is through Jesus Christ. Only through Him. You can't worship God in any other way except through Jesus Christ. Can you think about that for the next week? 1 Timothy 1, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, the honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And to that we say, Jesus Christ be glorified forever and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now thanking you again for the truth that you've shown us in your word, the truth of Jesus Christ, the only way that we can come to you. Jesus said this himself. No one comes to the Father but by Him. This is why that we end our prayers in the name of Jesus Christ, because we have no right to approach you in any other way. Lord, help us to take your word to heart, to obey the commandments. 
We don't have the right to do this in any other way than the way that you've told us to do it. We must worship you in spirit and truth. And that truth is described for us in the Word of God. We can't add anything to that. We can't take anything away from it. This is the prescription for worshiping you. Lord, help us to do it in that way. Not to have any idols in our hearts or in any other place. Nothing visible, nothing invisible that takes the place of you. Lord, help us as Christians today, as the body of Christ here, as we meet together in this building today, to know it's the true God and only the true God that we can worship. We stand whole, redeemed, washed, and purified by the blood of Jesus Christ and by Him alone. Help us, Lord, to understand it. Speak to the heart of someone who might be here today who's lost, who may have never understood these things, that Jesus Christ is the only way. There is no other way than Him. Open up our hearts to that truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Next year uh, is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. We don't claim to be a Reformation church because we believe that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ came before the Reformation. That there was a true church that has always believed exactly what we believe in this body here as Christians. That that church never went out of existence. That it existed all of the time uh, since Jesus founded it. That's what we believe the perpetuity of the church is. But we look at the Reformation and we understand why there was a Reformation. Because those who came out of the Catholic Church were doing this primary thing. If you want to say the crux of what they did was to restore Jesus Christ. Next year I'm attending a conference that is a summit on Christology. It's going to be about this very thing. Who is Jesus Christ? What do, what do we recognize by Christ in the Scriptures? And how was that so distorted through Catholicism for all those hundreds of years? And so the Reformation essentially was that, restoring the glory of Christ in the church, who He really is. And one of those things would be how you could never worship that God through an idol. So distorted that men had to come out of that mess and say, we can't do this any longer. We can't believe in false ways of salvation or any of these things. And so they got their Christology right. So we'll go to a conference next year that deals with that issue, the Christology. And I'm looking forward to that because there'll, there'll be a lot of good preaching on that very, very precious doctrine. Who is Christ? This is what I want to impress upon you today. That, and it'll be next week as well. Idols that you make with your hands, you can't worship through that. But I would say, seriously think that there's probably not a person in here, I don't think so, I know most of you, that sits at home worshiping an idol that you made with your hands or you bought at the store or whatever. You probably don't do that. But as we'll see next week, there are a lot of things that are invisible images that are in the heart. And those things take the place of God as well. We have to learn how to put those things down and make Christ the center of our life. In other words, what I'm saying to you, Christian, is that the Christology of your life needs to be restored. Who is central? Who is first to you? Maybe that's why I say I'm so glad to see you on a holiday weekend. I know who Christ is to you. We'll sing another verse of our song. God's spoken to your heart in some way. We're happy to talk to you about Berean Baptist Church, what we believe, what we teach, church membership, baptism, salvation. We're happy to discuss that with you up here, back there, wherever, before you leave the building today. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. 
If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.